Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, Owen Jones here, welcome to the podcast. Now, the Empire. When people think about the British Empire, they think it was something that belongs very much to the past. The polling, disconcertingly for people like me to say the least, shows that lots of people have positive impressions of the Empire. They think it was a force to good. Now today I'm speaking to Professor Gehindi Andrews. He is a academic, he's often on our TV screens, you may well have seen him. And he's just written a new book which is out, which I thoroughly recommend everybody buys, called The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. And it does show, partly of course, the the real horrors of empire that people need to know about. So that's one reason I recommend, because uh, we haven't had a national reckoning over empire. But it also shows why the empire is still a thing in new forms why colonization has not died and i think a lot of people will find that provocative but it's something people need to listen to and to learn from so this is a super important discussion now this new podcast is about offering an alternative to the right-wing media speaking truth to power doing things like looking over uncomfortable truths which is what this podcast will do today also we're going to have some fun if you want to support us with our interviews discussions documentaries you name it please support us as we expand via the supporter function on the podcast description or on patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 that way you can help decide who we speak to what we speak about and so on whatever you do so appreciated if you give us five stars on itunes because it just helps get the word out also please subscribe and spread the message after all of that please listen to this chat with gehindi andrews it's really important we need to know our history and we need to understand our present. So if you're just joining us, please like and subscribe. I am very honoured to have with me the very esteemed uh, Professor Kainde. Kainde, thank you so much for joining us. We're here to discuss, of course, your new book, The New Age of Empire, which is very exciting. Uh, hopefully, yeah. Some people in the right wing, on the right wing press aren't very excited, but I suppose that's part of the cause. That's a, that's, that's a T-thumbs up. It would be worrying if they were happy with it. Let's just, I mean, the full title, just so we're clear, is The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. And I'm going to, we'll talk about that contemporary aspect, obviously, that's otherwise why we're here. But I wanted to just roll back as well, of course, which is what your book talks about as well, which is uh, the empire, the British empire. And if we look at the polling in this country, most people have a favourable view of the British empire than don't. Uh, now, empire is obviously something, we've never had a reckoning. Uh, it's rarely, it's not taught about particularly. Um, so what, I mean, if we were going to kind of, to someone who thought, well, the British Empire was a great thing, I'm sure it had its drawbacks here and there, but overall was a net positive. What would you say? Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think like one of the polls of YouGov in 2014 was 60% of the population thought the British Empire was a force for good. And it just shows how badly we understand it. I mean, the British Empire was founded 
on slavery, right? Enslaved is that at the, at the end of the, the height of slavery, Britain was enslaving more people uh, than any other nation and had in fact enslaved so many Africans that it propped up French slavery by uh, selling off um, Africans into French uh, plantations. So slavery is such a massive part of the British empire. Um, also then you think about colonial violence, places like India, places like Africa. If you think about some of the things, even concentration camps, where were these uh, first uh, trialed in British empire, in South Africa, places like Kenya. I mean, really the, the actual history of the British empire is mostly just brutal violence against black and brown bodies across the world and is responsible for, I, and it's, it's, it's in the millions of deaths that the British Empire is, is responsible for. So it really does tell us just how badly we understand this history if we think it's a good thing. I mean, I think of two particular incidents, um, not incidents, blimey, two very striking examples of what you're talking about. Um, one, uh, India, uh, it was late Victorian Holocaust by Mike Davis, which went into the fact that famines uh, artificial famines caused the potential deaths of tens of millions of people. Uh, obviously, another example, Kenya, uh, in the 1950s, uh, when um, the Mau Mau uprising was suppressed with brute force and tens of thousands were killed, people were put in camps, which it's just not spoken about, is it? It's just it's just erased from history. Yeah, completely. It's it's it's. I, mean, I <laughs> when I went on uh, Piers Morgan's um, Good Morning Britain and just and just mentioned that you actually cannot compare Nazi Germany to the British Empire because the British Empire lasted far longer and did far more damage, and there really is no comparison. Um, but because you know history is taught by the people who win, right? Had Hitler and the Nazis won, I'm sure we wouldn't be we wouldn't think the Holocaust was a terrible thing. And because the British Empire was dominant and won effectively, we have this myth making and we just ignore the, the levels of violence, which really are relatively unprecedented. But we are talking about tens of millions of lives lost uh, due to the British Empire over a couple of centuries. Let's lay some sacred cows. The Enlightenment. A lot of people think about the Enlightenment. They think humanity finally emerges, blinking into the sunlight as it escapes the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. What would you, what would you say? What was your you know, kind of view of the Enlightenment? Uh, the Enlightenment is um, white identity politics, is what I think I say in the book. Um, I mean, it's just complete nonsense, right? So at the point where the West emerges, Europe becomes predominant, it really isn't ahead of any part of the world. It's like the Dark Age in the Dark Age in like the 1492, the 15th century. I mean, this, Europe is part of the only part of the world in the Dark Age at that point. And is only really able to pull itself up from barbarism through genocide in the Americas, slavery of African people, colonial violence, and then essentially builds itself up to the point where you can have the Enlightenment in the 18th century, um, standing on the top of all these dead bodies and all this wealth produced by colonialism, and then can say, look, it's, this is where reason comes from. This is where truth comes from. This is where freedom comes from. And it's, 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 it's propaganda. I mean, it, it really is. It's not, there's nothing else you can call the Enlightenment, I don't think. In terms of the West and the, the kind of the emergence of, I suppose, the notion of the West, and obviously this, you know, is linked to the Enlightenment and so on. How would you, if we're going to look at the emergence of, of the European powers as global, as the global powers they became, and they became eventually emerged with a kind of common identity, how did the West become the dominant force on Earth? Yeah, this is why I say in the, in the book makes this argument that really racism, white supremacy is the most important glue that holds everything together. So you think about that time when the West emerges, 1492 is a really important uh, date. Um, I remember, I don't, I don't think they still have this uh, nursery rhyme in schools, but we did in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 
And there is a reason why Columbus is the most celebrated figure in, in the United States of America, even though he never went to America. But they got like the whole states are named after him, but he's everywhere. Uh, it's because that move to the Americas is such, it's so important for the emergence of the West because it allows Europe to have the land, the resources, the gold, et cetera, in the Americas, and then to have slavery and transatlantic slavery. Um, also population, population explosion to kind of go into the, into, the, into the West. So that's why we call it the West. And without that, really, probably don't have the Industrial Revolution. You don't have democratic revolution. It's because the West was able to expand, it's because Europe was able to expand into the Americas. That's like the Garden of Eden, which provides the bounty for which all else follows. If we look today, I mean, in terms of in the 19th century, you got the scramble for Africa when European powers basically divided Africa amongst themselves. And there were various horrors. There was the German genocides um, in Southern Africa. Uh, there were King Leopold, uh, one of the great tyrants of human history, again, airbrushed from existence. Uh, the Belgian king, uh, up to 10 million people killed in in, in the Congo. And what they did, the West, I mean, it's interesting, you know, your, your kind of take on obviously that part of history in terms of how it links to today is they got, they sent these pseudo scientists to prove that those they were subjugated were inferior. And this was this kind of biological basis, pseudo scientific basis for racism, which casts its long shadow over today. Yeah, and that's really important. Again, just connecting back to the Enlightenment and these ideas about racism and where we where we get this idea that race is biological, that race is in the body, that like race is, there's different races who have different traits, etc. And this really is one of the first things that Western science does, particularly social sciences, anthropology, etc. And they did go into the colonies and really try to prove this, right, to give the evidence that Africans are inferior and white people are superior. But that was so important because, remember, the logic here is that black and brown life is disposable. That when you go into the Americas and, and trigger the biggest genocide in history of human being, with probably about 65 million uh, people killed in a very short period of time, um, that you want to enslave Africans so that Africans can build the commodities. Um, you think about sugar and you think about cotton as being the two kind of key industrial revolution commodities. Then you want the resources. You want to go into, you want to go into India and take resources again and, and labor, et cetera. Well, in order to do that, you need to commit these atrocities, right? Well, we are talking about tens, hundreds of millions of lives, but you need to justify that. And the justification is that we're not really human beings. And that's where you get those kind of scientific rationales behind that to say that actually uh, white supremacy is perfectly legitimate. It's perfectly fine because we're actually, we're less advanced. We're actually savages. I know the debate sometimes gets bogged down in this and outrage merchants on the right, it often suits them for that to happen. But obviously Winston Churchill is a striking example because he's so uh, celebrated in, in British popular culture, deified in, in by, by large sections of the British establishment. And it's seen as the ultimate outrage to, to discuss the reality of Winston Churchill. I always find this interesting because the US conservative pundit Ben Shapiro says, uh, facts don't care about your feelings. And yet so much of the right is constantly offended by fact, I mean, Winston, it's true. Winston Churchill, it's true. He was the prime minister of the wartime coalition when British uh, Britain defeated the, the the horrors of Nazism. But if we were to look at, you know, for example, the famine in Bengal in 1943 and his attitude, how he described Indians. I mean, what, what would you say, just looking back at that whole, uh, that, that whole issue? 
Well, I think the key thing is this justification of, well, he's a man of his times. It's complete nonsense because actually Churchill was seen to be really racist and extreme on these issues at his time. Um, Leo Amory, who was one of the colonial secretaries of India, not in any way an anti-racist, said to uh, Churchill himself, he said, look, on the issue of how you view and talk about Indians, I can see no difference to how Hitler talks about the Jews. I mean, that, this is at the time. This isn't looking back saying this is terrible. It's contemporaries thought that his views on Indians were awful. And he was perfectly happy to sacrifice three million um, lives in the Bengal famine um, just to protect potential shipping for uh, grain for Britain. It wasn't even like there was a crisis. It was just just in case it's fine for three million Indians to die. Um, at the time, people people were wary of him. People there was there was even in the um, Tory Tory party at the time, the younger people were kind of wary of him. He, he was known to be an extreme racist, eugenicist, etc. It's not this is not looking back criticizing him. Actually, he was he was out he was out there at the time. So a lot of people would think whatever they think about the empire, you know, they might say, okay, fine, you've got a point. Empire wasn't so great, very terrible, but the empire's gone. Decolonization took place the formerly subjugated nations across the planet uh, achieved their independence. This is this is the past we're talking about. Yeah, no, that's the whole purpose of the book, right? To say, actually, if you look at the logic, what's the key logic of the West? It is white supremacy. It is that black and brown life doesn't matter. The fact that we're having in 21st century, the biggest protests around these issues, and people are literally the same, reminding people that black life matter, black lives matter. That should tell us that things haven't, haven't really changed as much as we like to think. And what's really happened and what's really shifted is you move from an old version of colonialism, which was European dominated, um, heavily colonial violence um, with, with, with arms and forces and things like slavery, et cetera. That couldn't really be sustained because people revolt, people, as particularly after the Second World War, uh, when you had millions of people in the colonies, uh, remember these were world wars, all fighting for their freedom. People weren't going to go back to just say, yeah, we're gonna have this old hard, hard style colonialism. So what happens after the Second World War is there's a shift away from Europe for the center move, whereas before it was European empire, European powers, it shifts to America. Remember the Garden of Eden as the wealth, et cetera, becomes the center of the way that the system works. And there's also a shift away to, towards more coer um, less coercive forms of power. And now it's about financialization. It's places like the UN, it's the World Bank, it's the Internationally Monetary Fund. Uh, so you kind of, people win their political independence, but economically, the actual relationship between the West and the rest of the world is exactly the same as it was 100 years ago as it is now, where Africa, Asia, Latin America, et cetera, are fine to be exploited so that we can have the wealth we have today. So it looks different a little bit in terms of politics and who's the leader of the countries, et cetera. But in reality and in the outcomes, it's exactly the same. Now, I know one of the things you talk about in the book, and I think this is really interesting because it comes up in the context of a right-wing discourse in this country. Um, so if we talk about, for example, Britain's aid budget, a lot of the people who argue against international aid will say, well, actually, a lot of these now independent countries, their governments are riddled with corruption. What's your kind of explain? So I, as you can see, I'm setting these questions up for you to, to answer them. But what, what, what just explain your take on that whole issue of corruption in the in the uh, ex-colonial, uh, formerly subjugated states ruled by Britain and, and other countries. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's corruption. I mean, and, you know, nobody could say there isn't corruption. There's insane corruption. I think I give some examples in the book. Um, I mean, good luck, Jonathan, the president of Nigeria, is accused of taking $1 billion out, literally overnight, took a billion dollars from Shell and, trans and took it overseas overnight. 
directly from the country's reserves. They can give lots and lots of examples of that. The issue here is that that is corruption, but that's not African corruption. That's the corruption that's built into the way that these colonies and form, or you want to, you could call them former colonies, I'd probably just call them colonies, uh, are managed, right? Where, um, let's take that example of, of the billion pounds, the billion dollars that goes out of Nigeria. Where did it come from? It was Shell and any um, Italian uh, corporation. Uh, where did the money go? When they took it out of Nigeria, where did it end up? It ended up offshore banks, it ends up in um, London, finance, it ends up in the places, it ends up in the West, basically. So it's money from the West that goes back to the West um, and never really stays, never really stays in the African continent. The whole system is set up to do that because what's happened now is it's all about economic exploitation. And these leaders who are stealing the money and taking the resources, if you actually trace back how they got into power, where they were educated, they were largely educated in the West, uh, they're supported by the West, they're propped up by the West, um, they're put there to do that very job. So yeah, corruption is a problem, but it's, it's, not, it's the system itself that is corrupt. And when you do have leaders who arise who say, no, nah, let's not do this, let's do something else. And this goes historically back to people like Patrice Lumumba in the Congo um, in the 60s, or even more recently in the 80s, uh, when you had Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso, they very quickly killed off or there's a coup or something. Um, so yeah, if you want to explain the corruption, the corruption can only be explained uh, in the West. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, I'm interested in exploring all the ways that you know, I suppose what I should use formal colonies, the form of formal colonies and <laughs> colonies in, uh, is in terms of how that relationships maintained, because obviously in the British Empire, you had military armed subjugation and military force obviously is not, is not something the West has, has ceased to engage in for, uh, to pursue its strategic and economic ends. Um, and, and imposing their own direct client or administrative structures on those countries. So how does it work now? What are the kind of mechanisms to ensure that continued subjugation? Uh, yeah, so the mechanisms are, it's essentially, it's about trade. So I think one of the sections in the book is called, there's no such thing as um, fair trade, right? So an example I use would be Cabriwood. Cabriwood is a really good example. One, I'm from Birmingham, so I spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time growing up in Cabri World, and I take my kids there as well. And if you look at Cabri World, Cabri is the perfect example. It's a company which is its, it's key commodity is cocoa, right? I mean, without cocoa, there's no there's no chocolate, there's no Cabris, there's no multi-billion-dollar um, corporation. Um, but where do they get the cocoa from? They get it from Ghana, largely, and other parts of and other parts of the world. Now, now if you look at the conditions of the people who farm the cocoa. They're horrendous. I mean, literally horrendous. And 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 Cadbury's is a fair trade uh, company. 
but one of their um, aims is by 2050 that they will make sure that all their cocoa farmers are paid $1.50 a day, right? That's like their aims. That tells you what they're getting paid now. So the place where that produces the resource, uh, cocoa, is literally stolen out. They just take take it out. They don't pay a proper money for it, et cetera. Taken out of, of uh, Ghana, taken to Birmingham. Um, it's turned into this product. It's, it's marketed. It's, it's sold for loads and loads of money. There's all this profit made, um, but none of that profit goes back um, into Africa. Now that was what the whole purpose of old-style formal colonialism was. That's why it was done. Um, and now it's just still done. It's just not done at the barrel of a gun um, because the political, which ties into the other question about corruption, et cetera, runs the countries. You have countries who are, in theory, free, but they're all totally dependent um, on Western finance regimes, right? So when the West leaves and European countries leave um, Africa, for instance, um, it's like, okay, now you're free, go ahead, et cetera, et cetera but they've been underdeveloped to the point where there's hardly any schools, there's hardly any hospitals, there's no infrastructure, there's no infrastructure, there's no factories, they can't possibly produce. So for example, Ghana couldn't possibly produce its own chocolate bars, it doesn't have any factories. So straight away they fall into this relationship with the West where they still have to rely on the West to take out resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's sort of justified because they've got a black, um, <laughs> black president. But if you actually look at the, the basic, the economic relationship it really hasn't shifted in any way, shape or form. And probably most of the world live in very similar conditions today, doing very similar work today that they would have done about 100 years ago. When we talk about racial inequality, what comes to people's minds who at least engaged with the issue of, of that form of inequality is disproportionate police harassment, disproportionate incarceration, levels of poverty, unemployment, uh, discrimination in the workplace and so on. But you want us to think as well of it in a global sense. So do you want to just kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah, so that's all true, right? And we, we tend to think about racism in those terms. But really, all, everything that you just said in terms of anti-black racism here and the statistics is all linked to the global problem. And the best way to think, the best, if I was going to draw a graphic of like, how do we understand racism today? What we should think, we'll do a map and color code it of GDP per capita. And you'll find very quickly that it's Africa at the bottom, sub, sub, so-called sub-Saharan Africa at the bottom, the West with all the white countries at the top, and then there's this hierarchy in between. It literally created the world in the image of white supremacy, right? And if you look at the outcomes for that, so the stat I think I use in the book, um, and I, I usually quote, is that a child dies every 10 seconds because they don't have proper access to food or water. Almost all of them, I mean, actually, I think I would actually say probably every single one of those children are black and brown in the underdeveloped world. That's racism, but we don't think of it in those terms. Um, and this is a major part of the problem because we, we're, we're missing the point if we just think that racism is what happens when white people in the West are mean to black people. Yeah, that is definitely part of it, but that's because of a global system um, and that hierarchy you see around the world, you then also see that hierarchy here. So you can't solve the issues um, of why you can't solve the issue of racism in the UK without solving the issue of racism in Africa and other parts of the world because they're totally connected. So there's been there's a lot of triumphalism, um, except for I suppose the hard right of politics in Britain anyway about Biden's triumph in the United States. Donald Trump is gone. Even you know many people on the right would accept Trump was another not very subtle racist. And now Joe Biden is here and uh, a new golden era can begin, which can unpick the legacy of, apparently the legacy of, uh, of, of official racism, which began in 2016. What do you, <laughs> how would you answer that? How would you kind of, what's your take on the fall of Trump, 
the rise, you know, Biden's triumph. Is there any grounds for optimism? What's its significance and what maybe is the critique? Uh, I mean, at this point, Black Lives Matter emerged under Barack Obama, the first black president. So clearly the issue did not arise with Trump, right? Um, Malcolm X is always the person to go to on these issues. And he has this thing where he talks about the difference between the Southern wolf, who is Trump, right? Trump's a Southern wolf who bears their bears their teeth in a growl. You know they're racist. You know they're not your friend. They know that you want to eat you. It's very obvious, right? Um, but compare that to the Northern Fox. Now, the Northern Fox uh, bears his teeth in a smile, right? Still going to eat you, but he's going to pretend he's, he's more cunning. Uh, he's going to pretend to be your friend. That's Joe Biden. In fact, that was Barack Obama as well. And that's that's kind of this kind of liberal racism where it 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 has it feels nicer when you get eaten, but you're still getting eaten, basically, right? Um, and that's that's the issue. When we think about racism, we've really reduced it to just there's these bad people, these bad white people who are the problem. And if you can educate them or at least keep them out of power, then that's going to be the solution. But actually, no, racism is in the very nature of society. So if you look, take someone like America, even with Barack Obama, black president for eight years, basically every single indicator to black Americans goes down. Like inequality actually gets, the, the, the gap goes gets bigger. The only place it doesn't get bigger is in employment. So the employment rate for African-Americans goes up under Obama. But then you look at what kind of jobs people are getting, you realize that's why the poverty rate was going up. So the, the crazy statistic I heard um, from Kiangi Yamata Taylor's book, um, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, is that in New York City, 50% of all black people who have jobs have jobs in fast food restaurants. I mean, and that, and that just tells you the problem. Yeah, maybe you've got a job, but that job is not enough uh, to feed you, which is why under Barack Obama, food stamp usage for black African-Americans, it went up by like 120%. It did literally balloon over that period. What are your hopes for Black Lives Matter, not just as a US movement, but obviously as a global movement in the coming coming months and years? I mean, I think the fact that you've got so many people, so many young people, um, has to be a good thing, right? I think one of the big problems we've made really since the civil rights movement, and we had a civil rights movement in the UK as well, and it was this moment where prior to the 60s, look, black people weren't in, we weren't in, we weren't in the house, we were just like locked out, you know, there was no, I could never possibly be a professor because the union would just say, we don't want to hire black people, and that's it, right? Now they probably don't want to hire black people, but they won't tell you, at least, right? So what's what happened was we put a lot of effort into kind of getting into the system and reforming the system, and now you have black presidents, you have black professors, you have a black middle class, and I think people were starting to think maybe this is, we're making progress. But finally, I think we realized that it was a cul-de-sac. It was a dead end. We haven't changed the system. And I think because you have so many people out there on the streets now, I think that this generation isn't going to settle, isn't going to settle for that anymore. It's going to push for the changes we actually need. Another thing I was going to ask you, actually, was is about the pandemic, which we can't, can't just ignore the pandemic or talk about this. And we've seen, obviously, in Britain, how black people have been disproportionately hit by the pandemic, more likely to die, more likely to become seriously ill. But there's also, on a global scale, you've got the global, the countries of the global north who are, with Big Pharma, vaccinating, you know, being able to vaccinate their population, whilst poorer countries aren't, aren't, being able to, aren't in the same way at all. What, what, what's your kind of, how do you think that interacts with what some of the things you're talking about? Yeah, so I mean, the pandemic's a perfect example of just showing, one, it showed you the nature of racism in the West, right? So it's not a coincidence that black people are more likely to die here, are far more likely to die in America, because it's structured in, and, and it's about how we live in, in the cities, uh, key worker jobs, 
um, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I showed you those disparities really, really clearly. I think you can also see the global disparities in vaccines. I mean, the vaccine thing is, is so obvious about the wealth, et cetera. But it's a bigger issue here is that the fact you even have a vaccine within what, a year, was it less than a year? Um, people said that's impossible, never happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you compare that to something like malaria, which has existed for uh, hundreds of years, we've known about this, kills, I think it's 400,000 children a year die of malaria, still no vaccine, right? Still not on the horizon. Probably that may never, 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 never happen. And why is that? Because if you think about something the way that vaccines even get developed, it very much is around this idea of white supremacy. An illness comes into the West, which is going to kill lots of, um, of white people, and all of a sudden, there's a vaccine. We saw it with Ebola as well. Ebola's been around in Africa for, for centuries. Um, it was only when it came into America, so all of a sudden, there was a vaccine. So it shows you that this, even in medicine, where we would think there would be a lot more um, equality, there actually really isn't. And then the bigger picture around the coronavirus is that, you know, what coronavirus has done is it has brought in conditions in terms of life and death conditions that are experienced by the majority of the world, actually, most of the time. And what do I mean by that is poverty kills 9 million people every year. So more people, far more people in the last calendar year died because they were poor than died because of coronavirus. That kind of life and death stakes, right? And coronavirus brought those life and death stakes to the West. And we saw what happened, like massive mobilization, left-wing policies like Mar like Karl Marx was running the government, like, we've got to save, we've got to save, we've got to save, we've got to save. But we basically accept worse conditions every single year for black and brown people in the underdeveloped world. That should tell you the level to which um, that, that white supremacy is still framing our basic assumptions about how we live. Finally, I'm always interested with books like yourself, how they can galvanize people to do something, you know, to, to, to act. So what, what for you... And it's such an important book, which people desperately need to read and, and, and to, to act on. So what for you is kind of the takeaway, the main takeaway you want people, you know, the main purpose when people read this book, this is what your, your kind of your big aim that you want them to take away. Um, yeah, it's interesting because when I finished the book, <laughs> the, the, the publishers were like, can you make it more positive at the end? And I was like, no, it's not like, because this is the one of the things that we're doing now, right now, is we've had uh, Black Lives Matter, we're thinking about race, et cetera. And I've read reading all these books where you kind of come to the end and it's all positive and it's all, yeah, we can do this. And then, and then, and then. The very, very first thing we need to understand is the scale of the problem. If you want to understand racism properly, you should be uncomfortable. And that's not just for white people, but that's for all of us. Like I'm as much as part of the problem there as anybody else's. So we should leave the book feeling uncomfortable and that's fine because that's the emotion that we need. Um, we need to understand the depth and the scale of it and how it is rooted in our everyday life. Like it's not something that can be fixed with uh, racial bias training or a bit of read a book here or et cetera, et cetera, legislation. So it's to really understand the scale of it. In many ways, this book is a prequel. So my, the last book I wrote was called Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism, which kind of gave a, this is what you can do, the Black Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, revolution is possible. But this one, the whole aim of it is to, is to really make the case that revolution is necessary. If we want to end racism, honestly, truly want to end racism, then we have to have a, a much deeper look at the issues than we currently are having. And also I'd point out, this is not just an issue for, for black and brown people. Obviously it is for us, it's, it's a matter of life and death. This, this really does matter on, on, on that scale. But actually, if you think about the, the system of the West that has created, which is based on this exploitation, which is based on complete, uh, on growth, on stealing resources at the ground, on is this develop, way of developing, which is, which, is, which is completely extractive, 
that's going to kill everybody. <laughs> Literally, capitalism is going to kill all of us for the climate crisis. So actually, it's not just for us that we need to learn this. Um, this message is really for everybody. That if we keep going the way we're going, we won't just kill black and brown people. We might actually end the world. And maybe if you think of it in that sense, we'll, we'll make the changes that are necessary. And very, very finally, because I did forget to ask this, and I think it's important. So in terms of Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, and Boris Johnson obviously has a history of saying gratuitously, unambiguously racist things, as well as gratuitously homophobic things. And I, I bring up Nimco Ali because Nimco Ali, I debated with her before the 2019 general election, where she refused to say that the word bum boy was homophobic. Um, she she wrote an article a year ago, she criticized, or a year and a half ago, and she she criticised people like yourself. And pointing out that, for example, in the government, there were people like Priti Patel. Uh, there was uh, Sajid Javid and, of course, now his successor, Rishi Sunak. So, what would you, you know, they, they would say, how you know, it's the classic, I suppose. How can Boris Johnson be a racist when so much of his cabinet uh, come from a variety of backgrounds? Um, I would just say that in order to administer colonialism, right, you had to have um, African people, Asian people who supported it, right? Like, like one of the features of... Uh, Western colonial domination was to have black and brown people carry be the people to carry out colonialism, and even today that's no different. As I said, if you look at the the people who are stealing the money out of Africa, most of them are black, right? The same you can make the case for Asia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, because this idea that because there's black and brown faces in something that means it's legitimate, that is utterly ahistoric and completely nonsensical, um, and that's no different if you look at this government. And in many ways, I mean. Is it a coincidence? I mean, if you if you think it's a coincidence that the government has not probably definitely the most racist um, immigration policy I've seen for in my lifetime and certainly maybe even before for for a long while has um, had Asian Home Secretaries, they, you 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 fall for anything. You will literally fall for anything. There's a there's a it's it's not just that black and brown people can be equally racist and can deliver equally ra equally racist policies. It's actually that sometimes they're purposely put into that position in order to deliver racist policies because the, pol the, po the politicians realize that if we do this, it makes it look, it's going to make it look better. It's going to be a PR move. So yeah, don't, please don't bring, Priti Patel is not an example, any example that things are getting better. Priti Patel is actually an example that things are getting a lot worse, I would say. What an honor to be to you. And as I've said, it's a must-read book, which I, I hope everyone who watches this or listens to this uh, goes and goes and gets a copy. One of the one of our great intellectuals in this country um, on these issues. So it's a big, big honor. Thank you so, so much for joining us. No, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, everyone. Now, if you want us to do more and more of these and documentaries and discussions, you name it, please support us either with a supporter function in the podcast description or at patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Please give five stars if you are willing and able to on iTunes. Subscribe and spread the word. Loads and loads more to come. Speak to you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.